know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome back to the Emancipation Nation podcast. We're diving back into the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, part two of this series. And I have Lisa Belton back with me again this week. Welcome back, Lisa. Thank you. And I'm always happy to be here, of course. Our podcast episode last week, we introduced four amazing women who have dedicated themselves to improving Indigenous communities. Last week, we discussed the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, or as we know, MMIW. Um, We talked about some of the history surrounding the issue, as well as advocacy and policy related to Indigenous women and youth. This week, we're going to be discussing the systems that can be oppressive for Indigenous peoples, systems including the child welfare system, the healthcare system, educational system, and criminal justice system. So while we recognize that these systems are designed to help um, and are often well-intentioned, we also need to constantly evaluate these systems in order to ensure that various communities are getting quality program, quality services, in quality support. Exactly. I'm a little evaluation and quality, quality improvement never hurt anybody. But really, um, I do think that's why it's so important uh, to have diversity at the table, especially during uh, those evaluation uh, processes. Those voices like are necessary if we're going to improve, you know, these systems. Exactly. Like you, you can only think from inside your own head. Like, I know it's, it's weird to think about, but you have to have divor- diverse peoples at the table. You have to have those diverse voices at the table. If they're not at the table, and I mean at the big boy tables, if they're not there, then you can try to be as gracious, as kind, as giving, as loving as you want to be, by the way. But You'll learn from this interview, of course, that these systems have not been kind and generous and loving, Uh, but you can even be as kind and as thoughtful as you can try to be and try to take care of other peoples who are different than yourself, but you cannot and you will not serve the population well if you don't have their voice at the table. Right. And, you know, kind of reminds me of the saying, uh, if you have the power, shut up and listen when you're at the table. And if you don't have the power, speak up when you're at the table. Absolutely. And I like to add to that, if you need a seat at that table and somebody goes to the bathroom, you need to sit down and take that seat and speak up while you're there. So without further ado, I'm excited to have this conversation about systems and for the audience to learn about it. So Let's go back into the conversation about missing and murdered Indigenous women. Talk to me a little bit about the foster care system and how how that is similarly 
being played out in a way that is oppressive um, to indigenous populations? Um, I think we have to keep in mind part of the reason why a lot of folks don't know or why society doesn't know is because this process was meant to be slow and meticulous. Mm -hmm. Like residential schools didn't just happen for 20 years. It happened for hundreds of years. It was 1800s. In Canada, our last residential school closed between 1996 and 1997. Every single one of us on this call was alive. We all could have went to residential schools. And so I think these are the pieces like there's also this romanticized narrative that gets played. I know primarily um, in Canada, it's around the, um, the savage woman being saved. And then it's also around the, the strong warrior Indigenous man um, getting better and getting a better life because he married a white woman. Mm-hmm. And so these are the stories that get played out. You have the Cowboys and Indians era that gets played out, which no Indigenous representation took place in any of any film or in any novels. They were based off of these depictions that people deemed indigeneity, which wasn't the truth. And so these, this false narrative gets played out over and over and over again that people still hold Like my mom was 40 when she had me and my dad passed when I was three. She still, until I was an adult, because I wasn't raised in my culture, that was something I had to reclaim. And this is a story that we hear often because of being displaced on reserves or our families coming off of their home communities and going into the cities. When you become an urban indigenous person, a lot of the time you're not connected to the land anymore. What we call in Toronto is our concrete jungle because you walk down the street and same as New York, I'm sure. And there's buildings everywhere. There's not a lot of land for you to go on to actually practice your ceremonies and be a part of your community because you're not there anymore. And so there's this sort of like indirect displacement that goes on because there's families that can't survive on the reserve or families that can't survive on their homelands. And so they leave and it creates this, again, another version of displacement. But when you come into the city, there's these romanticized comments that, that are said, it's the stereotypes. And where does that come from? That come from years and years and years of meticulous process and all of these laws and legislations that come into play. So then when you have residential schools and you're blending into sort of the 60s scoop and you're blending into the foster care system, there's this idea and there's this presumption that Indigenous women, quote unquote, are so savage that they can't take care of their children, that there's these dirty little Indians that are running around. And I'm using these terms because these are things that were said to me. These are things that were said to my family members. These are things that I've heard from family friends, from parents, from cousins, from our community, because these were the stereotypes that were put into place. And so when you are thinking and you're holding on to these stereotypes that you don't even recognize are stereotypes, you're going to believe what settler society states. And so are the women can't take care of the children. They're the dirty little Indians running around. They're, they have lice, they have this, they have that, et cetera, et cetera. So then as a quote unquote, white family or settler family coming into this picture and you're being told by the Indian agents and by workers that the reason why these children are being taken away from their home community is because of neglect, you're going to believe them. But then what took place is exactly what they started doing in residential schools when they realized kids were running away. They started shipping them to other provinces and other states. 
So, like I said, I'm from the Maritime Provinces, and so some of my family was shipped over to BC or Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. or vice versa. Then you had now with the 60s scoop, which was huge gathering of children, as well as, I mean, this is the foster, this is the initial process of the foster care system. Mm-hmm. They did the same thing. It wasn't like, we have a lot of our Canadian children that got shipped off to Germany. They got shipped off to Switzerland, New Zealand, like in, or even in the States. Like You have our children being shipped cross country so that they could never make it back home. Mm-hmm. That process doesn't just come out of nowhere. That is a meticulous procedure that is put into place from hundreds of years of doing this and so wanting there, power and control. So there was, before we even get to like the formalized foster care, there was a whole paradigm set up that, yes. well, Native parents can't properly care for children and children of Native parents are just by definition likely to be neglected or abused or whatever. So let's set that mindset up. And Mm -hmm. then something comes along called the 60s scoop. And what was that again? Maybe the other, everybody else can explain it better, but this was like coming out of the residential school era, but also like, so it was a recognition that residential school systems were probably not the best Mm -hmm. and that they were bad, Mm -hmm. but didn't mean that they shut down right away. But there was this era of children who were still in residential schools and then an era of children that were coming out or that never went. And so these were the children that were being scooped up and completely removed from their communities and just being adopted out. The other thing, too, is you get more money for adopting an Indigenous child. And so it becomes a money grab. And the system, the system, um, the system adjusts itself, right? Like what Mel is saying, it adjusts itself. So, you know, and it, it, it also, the way that it adjusted itself and the kind of myths that were spread about Indigenous people um, depended on uh, the, the contact, the original contact when European countries were looking at Native nations as sovereign nations mm-hmm. and as disease and warfare and so forth, you know, started to diminish the population by 92%. Um, uh, by the year 1900, 92% of the indigenous population was gone. And now there, that's a very different reality from stepping on, you know, a, a coast and finding all of these established, um, you know, nations uh, to deal with, right? So the system adjusts itself and it moved from the boarding schools into this um, foster care, the CPS program. Um, and what what is going on now is that we have federal legislation, ICWA, but it's not followed or very rarely followed. And so we actually have higher rate of removal of Indian children from our communities and our families than we did in the boarding school era. So again, it goes to this, like, you know, the government says here are our laws, but then they don't follow them, right? And we see that um, with domestic violence, we see that with sex trafficking, um, you know, and so it's this, um, it's this kind of um, phenomenal, <laughs> a phenomenal situation to be in to look at the history and the contemporary relations between governments, uh, you know, like the U.S. government and Native nations, which are sovereign nations, and and have this continued um, lack of uh, follow through on the laws that they make um, themselves, and they don't follow their own their own laws. So, so Christine, you're saying that there are more children uh, being removed than during the residential and boarding school era today. Correct. 
And and so Canada currently makes like half of its state's income off of the removal of indigenous children. There's big, big money enacted um, beginning with um, Bush, um, the the second president, Bush. Um, And they established this program so that states make an incredible amount of money um, off of particularly removing indigenous children who are then automatically deemed um, there it's, it, what is it, uh, like learning disabled. Um, and then when you have a learning disabled child, or I, I'm not sure if that's the exact right term, but if you have a, a child that's deemed learning disabled, um, then you make even more money off of, um, off of, uh, uh, the, the, the children. And so, you know, when we're talking about, we're talking about sex trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sex trafficking happens, um, that, that, that foster care system is, a is a highway into sex trafficking for children of all races, but it's particularly one for indigenous children. So you have the sex trafficking that is coming out of that. You have the theft, the continued theft of children from our communities. And then you have in essence trafficking. I mean, if the state is making money off of um, taking these children away, um, it's, it's, it's all a commercialization. Mm -hmm. The view of, um, you know, indigenous people in particular, uh, okay, so wait, let me get this right. So the federal government is uh, there to one of the one of their roles is to protect abused and uh, neglected children. So they send money to the states. But the feds tell the states that we pay a higher premium if you find this so-called abuse and neglect in among native children. Native states then, when they find this abuse and neglect, get paid the higher premium. And when they remove the children, they get paid the, the, the quality premium to remove the children. And so what you're saying, in essence, is, you know, in fact, who's the biggest trafficker uh, in town? It's the one that's paying uh, for you to remove these children and put them in, I guess, suppose, is there a mandate to put them in? Uh, native homes. Well, they're, yeah, they're not supposed to be because there's federal legislation, but it's not followed. So they're supposed to put them, they're supposed to put them with um, indigenous families, but often they don't. And is there excuse we can't find, I mean, what's their excuse for breaking this law or not uh, following this mandate? Um, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure individuals have different, different excuses, but um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know of any sort of official um, explanation of it. I think it's more, uh, um, you know, it, it happens and they just keep doing it and hoping that it will, you know, maybe not be talked about or not acted on. But in South Dakota right now, the ACLU has a lawsuit. Um, and so people can can Google that and find more information on it. Also on the Met scandal, M-E-T-T-E scandal, where um, Indigenous, um, you know, and this is this is a common story, too, of Indigenous children being placed in um, foster care homes that are out of uh, the community and then being sexually and physically abused in those foster homes. So, you know, there, there's a, a great deal of um, corruption. We can draw a, a straight line here in Canada, and I'm sure we can uh, do the same Absolutely thing in, <laughs> in, in the U.S. Um, you know, many Indigenous girls' first point of entry into the criminal justice system here in Canada is a charge for an offense committed in like a child welfare facility, right? So maybe they get in a fight with someone or they cuss out the, one of the directors. And so they're charged with assault on a staff member or 
whatever. Um, and they're sent to detention centers for youth in care mm-hmm. here. And you know this very well, Celia, and we know it very well, Mel and I, because we work with traffic survivors. Here they meet recruiters, right, mm-hmm. who are working for sex traffickers who are often being exploited themselves, yes, but they are recruiting. Um, and g- so given the rates that Indigenous children are apprehended from their families mm-hmm. and their overrepresentation in the child welfare system, their presence there actually leads to their overrepresentation in the sex trade and as human trafficking victims and survivors. So we can draw a straight line from them being in foster care to Indigenous kids being um, overrepresented in these detention centers and then overrepresented in the sex trade. So it's safe to say that this system is trafficking them. Um, we and- also have to pinpoint to though, Marissa, because I think what how this comes full circle, every other sector that supports Indigenous children and youth receives in Canada 30% less funding. However, on the flip side, to foster an Indigenous child, I believe you get up to 25% more mm-hmm. money. And so wow. you are here's residential school processing all over again. Let's give them the lowest of the low education and programming dollars so that they're not learning, so that they're not building. Um, In Canada, my biggest frustration, because previous to my work in the front lines, um, I'm a huge advocate for education and learning and growing and bridging those gaps. Mm -hmm. And the biggest frustration is we have something called Head Start programs. I don't know if the states do too, but yes, you you have, okay, so you have your children, they're going into Head Start programs, You they speak the language, um, they teach them ceremony, they teach them Indigenous worldview and perspective, as well as sort of the concept of two-eyed seeing that we have in the Mi'kmaq community is balancing your life between settler ideologies, but Indigenous uh, worldview and blending Oh, wait, no, we have traditional Head Start. Do we have... Do we have that, Christine or Mary? What uh... we have immersion schools. We have some immersion schools in Minnesota and in South Dakota, but yeah, we are moving more and more towards recognizing the value of uh, cultural um, education, mm-hmm. especially with our Native communities. So yes, we do have a number of early education. Uh, programs that are revitalizing the language, using our elders as our, our resource people and to work with the students as well to reintroduce uh, the culture. And I think um, I think it's really important also when we talk about kids being removed from our native families for uh, mere um, unsubstantiated reasons. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a grandma that was caring for her grandchildren, and it had started to get cold here in Minnesota, and they hadn't gotten coats yet. So mm-hmm. grandma sent them to school without, you know, a warm coat, and uh, it was perceived as negligence, mm-hmm. and they removed the children from from grandma. Now, she was not receiving those funds. She was caring for the children and applied to uh, to uh, get those funds as as fostering them or as as their um, uh, 
as their caregiver, but they were not, it was a, it was a struggle for her to get that bearing because, you know, 30 years ago when she was a young woman, she had just a minor law infraction. So they were holding that against her to allow her to be the legal foster care to get those funds to care for those children in order that she could provide all the things that they needed, like a warm coat. Now, I've been a teacher for 25 years. I know plenty of families, non-native, who, you know, the kid runs out of the house and like, I'm not going to wear that coat or, you know, mm -hmm. leaves it on the bus or something like that. Those children are not instantly removed. And so uh, I think we're moving into the mode of understanding the cultural relevance of our native uh, communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is still a lot of um, the cultural aptitude left in a lot of us. The mm -hmm. you know, in Minnesota, our families move a lot between the reservation and the urban core. Uh, there's families that go back up to the reservation during the summer and they stay through rising season and then they come back to the Twin Cities during the cold season. And so there's there's they're considered transient, mm -hmm. but they're not really culturally. They're just following the pattern of the year, the, the cycle of, of the moon and of uh, crop um, um, collection. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people that, you know, non-Native people, they don't recognize it as that. And so they find the most minute reasons to remove mm -hmm. uh, children from the home and oftentimes are placed in, in non-Native uh, foster care. And just as, as the rest of them have said, that's often a direct pipeline to uh, sex, sex trafficking as well as incarceration. Mm -hmm. Well, and I want to go visit back uh, to education and you, Mel, before we do that, does the U.S., is that similar in that there's more funding available um, to, quote unquote, support uh, Native families and that turns into vis-a-vis -vis, uh, removing Native children and placing them in with, you know, white families or what, does that happen also in the U.S.? I wouldn't say that it doesn't happen. Um, I don't know that anybody would ever agree that that is actually happening, but it could very well be. I mean, there are people that are in foster care for the wrong reasons, mm -hmm, um, that it's it's a way to support themselves. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's not I mean, there are, I know families that have just wonderful hearts and souls and want to provide a good, a good uh, home for, for children, mm -hmm. but there are those that go into it uh, for the money and, uh, you know, provide the minimal for mm -hmm. the, those that live with them, the children that live with them, and oftentimes maybe are not as protective of, of some of the children that should be. But yeah, we know it. And, and uh, you know, I've heard a number of stories where, um, where the foster parents are, are trafficking girls right out of their homes. I mean, today, in this time, day and age, this, you know, we hear those stories. 
I wanted to say that um, along with what you're saying, Mary, about um, that there are, I mean, there's obviously good people in foster care. I mean, we know that, mm-hmm. but, um, but that it's not only the money, but for some of them, it's the access to the children so that they can sexually abuse them, whether they're just abusing them in the home or whether they're um, selling them to others uh, to be abused. You know, so yeah. it, there's, there's multiple motivations there for some of these families. Yeah, absolutely. And Mel, I want to go back to uh, finish your conversation about Head Start. So after Head Start, so, yeah, then after Head Start programs, then there's very little programs until post-secondary. Um, we have First Nations school, but again, they receive 30% less funding. So they can't, um, like their standards are not up to Ontario levels. Um, And then the reality is, unfortunately, because of this less funding and because it's the same process and procedures residential schools, they want to teach Indigenous children the bare minimum. A lot of our youth don't get to access Mm post-secondary. So this quote-unquote perk of having free education is often false. Um, I was status at the time when I was in post-secondary and I barely received any funding. So it depends on where you're from. It depends on how the government is quantifying. I know in the States it's blood quantum. And for here, we have a version of that. It's like your status card and it's based off of whether you're a 6.1 or 6.2 Indian, which is basically blood quantum. Um, mm-hmm. But that's the, the the challenge is that there's no bridge to close that gap in education. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that it's a lot of us that are mixed blooded indigenous people that are mixed with other races, primarily a settler race that do end up going to post-secondary. You don't see a lot of our full-blooded indigenous youth and and adults going. And that's because of the limited access and the, the fact that the gap is not closed. And unfortunately too, the reason why I was able to go was because my father died when I was three. There was money that you have the survivor's pension that gets put away. And that's what was saved in order for me to go to school. And so, but even then I struggled through it. I was, I, I was never trafficked, but my lived experience is I was on the spectrum of exploitation uh, on the verge of being trafficked. I was being groomed, but thankfully um, for me, I had severe social anxiety growing up. And so that's what saved me. But a lot of our, a lot of my friends, a lot of my community weren't as lucky so to speak mm-hmm. right and I've, I've been witness to and I mean you don't come into this field because you want to be in this field you sort of fall upon this field because you have a connection to it in some way um, right. but yeah so then you like you you have there's there's the gap that's not closed which means then we're not learning the systems. We're not learning the policies. We're not learning legislation. We're not learning how to sort of navigate in the white man's world. Well, like I started that- doing criminal justice. And even to this day, there's so many like complex nuanced terminology that gets used in the justice system that somebody who even has a background in criminal law, sometimes I can't even decipher it. So when Marissa said like you have a lot of our youth that get charged they don't even know what they're being charged with. And sometimes they just agree to it because they have no idea what's being said. They don't know how to read the, the words that are on the paper. And what is that mimicking? That's mimicking the false treaties that we're being 
signed by our communities because they didn't know what was in those treaties or what they didn't know what was in that legislation. And so it's the same process. It's the same procedure. Exactly. Yes. And what Christine said was that the system just, you know, it, it it's designed in such a strategic way that it adjusts and it does what it has to do. Mm-hmm. And another version of that, you know, when folks say, but that was so long ago, well, birth alerts here in Ontario. So um, Canada is made up of provinces and we're in the province of Ontario um, in September of 2020. Okay. So this is three months ago. Um, Ontario ended the practice of birth alerts. So birth alerts are warnings to hospitals Mm -hmm. to flag mothers that are considered high risk. So in some instances, these are good things in some instances, Mm -hmm. but these alerts disproportionately affect Indigenous women and other marginalized women, uh, Black women here in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And in some provinces, a mother who was just in the foster care system herself as a child was enough of a reason to be flagged. So there's that, they don't have a winter coat kind of deal, same thing. And these birth alerts can lead to babies being apprehended or they cause such immense fear and trauma that an expecting mother or a postpartum mother will not reach out for help because she's so afraid of her child being taken away. So this leads to so many other issues and mental health problems. And so Ontario canceled birth alerts, but it's 2020. And this was still happening, you know, in Ontario and across Canada. And so 52% of kids in Canada um, that are in foster care are Indigenous. There's another stat. And Indigenous children only make up uh, like 7% of the population here in Canada, but they're over 50% of the kids in foster care. And that's still underrepresented because we don't have proper stats for places like the territories, like Nunavut is a prime example, their population, especially so there's a prison in Nunavut and 97% of the inmates are Inuit, 97%. And that's what I wanted to ask about the the criminal justice system. It seems like, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit of just about the political system with the laws and um, the historic history, at least of the religious system, uh, the dominant religious system. So, uh, and, and touched on the healthcare system with these birth alerts. And what about the criminal justice system and the overrepresentation? Do, do we see that in the United States? What they're talking about happens in Canada as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, all of these things we can track back to colonization and how it continues to impact our indigenous families and communities. So when people say, oh, that happened so long ago or you know, get over it, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. And we know that, I mean, even our Minnesota Department of Human Services um, recognizes that our American Indian children in Minnesota are likely to be um, in out-of-home foster care placement than any other races. Mm -hmm. And that legacy of the boarding schools and the modern day welfare system directly contributes to our indigenous girls and uh, women being sex trafficked and involved in prostitution. And uh, through uh, the um, MMIW task force report, this research 
really does suggest that more than two thirds of our indigenous women engage in prostitution in Minnesota because uh, aligned with um, the fact that they had family members that attended boarding schools. And it's an indicator of how common this intergenerational trauma is for our indigenous women. And um, the research also found that the children who are in out of home placement are likely at risk of being trafficked. Mm -hmm. And those who are trafficked are likely to um, have experienced that that abuse and in a way just as i said it's it's a um it's that pipeline right into the incarceration system because of uh the abuse and the the mental anguish that they have gone through for so long mm -hmm. and um absolutely is one of the reasons again why our women in the united states and in Minnesota have higher incarceration rates than any other race as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing absolutely does lead to, to the next. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to hear the stories and it's hard to, to listen to these, these things because when people are desperate, so we talk about the foster care system, and the foster care system here in Minnesota ends when the kid turns 18. And what happens when they turn 18? The foster care uh, family generally turns the kid out and now they're on their own mm -hmm. with no little resources. So the transition from being whether in a home or in a foster care place to now being on the street and having to fend for yourself is a direct uh you know, has that direct relationship to, to the fact that they are now more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, they're more likely to be exploited due to unmet material and those relational needs, the financial and the emotional manipulations and traffickers specifically look at them. Absolutely. And so um, it happens uh, time and time again. And it's that direct, um, direct path, direct pipeline into incarceration. And I think when they, when the foster care system closes the books, it opens them up for the mental health system and the criminal justice system as they have very little resources. Christine, do you want to uh, speak on anything that we've been discussing so far on that, on that front? No, I'm good. You're good. Um, so I want to go to uh, Mel to talk about the, uh, you, is it the GLADU? System? Oh, the GLADU system, yeah. So I'm not sure if the states has the same thing. Um, so the GLADU courts is basically the gist of it is when you commit a crime, you can, I'm trying to say this carefully, <laughs> um, you're, you sort of can receive a lesser sentencing and more of a restorative justice practice. Mm -hmm. Um based off of the fact that you're indigenous. Um, so they take intergenerational trauma into practice, into play, sorry, in their decision-making. And they also look at integrating, um, sometimes cultural, um, looking at connecting with an elder or knowledge keeper to reconnect you with those pieces so that you can actually have, um, a level of systemic change or, or change within your own life. Mm -hmm. Now, the struggle with this though, is that 
in order to go through the Gladue court or the Gladue system, you have to have a guilty plea. So it it makes sense for somebody who has actually committed a crime Mm -hmm. because they can receive a lesser sentence and it's a more restorative practice to then be reintegrated back into society, but also connect with resources that you may never have had. Mm -hmm. Now, the challenge with this, though, is that our youth and society is not stupid. Mm -hmm. They know this. And they use this to their advantage. So a lot of our Indigenous youth will end up taking the fall and taking the charge for their friends Mm -hmm. because they can, quote unquote, get off. Mm -hmm. But what this translates to and what Marissa and I have seen substantially, especially when it comes to the ring of exploitation, especially around human trafficking, is that the trafficker will push and will recruit Indigenous women and Indigenous men specifically for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So instead of having a non-Indigenous person commit a crime or whatever, whatever they're doing, whether it's money laundering or stealing or whichever, Mm -hmm. they'll make and force Mm -hmm. the Indigenous people to do the crime because they'll quote unquote get off freer. And then they'll be back in the ring quicker because instead of having to go to jail for, say, six months, Mm -hmm. they'll have to do a program for six months. And so they can still work. They can still commit the crimes. They can still be pushed Mm -hmm. into doing all of these things. So and this also goes for a lot of other practices, not just in human trafficking, this just goes for in general. So we have a huge amount of our young men. I know we're specifically talking about MMIW, but a lot of our young men who are being pushed to groom, Mm -hmm. they're also going to be pushed into drug trafficking and to doing other things and heists and stealing cars and robbing. Carrying guns. Mm -hmm. Carrying guns, holding guns for people. And then they rat them out or they get caught. But then because there's Gladue, if you purposefully say, yes, I committed the crime, then they sort of work around that charge and may get a lesser charge. Mm-hmm. In some cases, this doesn't work though. And that's the issue. And so then you have a lot of our Indigenous youth who've now pled guilty to something that they've never done. Mm-hmm. And then they end up in jail for 50 years. Yeah. Or so it starts out good. their their criminal career. I mean, exactly. They it starts them on the pipeline. You know, I mean, yeah. that's happened with it, with our black youth in the U.S., um, you know, making mm-hmm. drug offenses tougher, stiffer laws for drug dealers, which really just uh, pushed it down to young people to begin to sell drugs. Here, you sell the drugs because you're going to get less time or you're going to get, you know, a slap on the wrist. And so it really just in the 80s brought young black men, teen men into the drug business, like, you know, across the U.S., in rapid pace, um, mm-hmm. because sometimes we don't realize the laws we make have, you know, ripple effects and 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 consequences well beyond our vision. Once again, a powerful episode. I remember I did an episode where we were talking about giving a voice to the voiceless, and I remember in that episode somebody said, "Oh, we're speaking; you just aren't listening." And I think that's the American dilemma. I think that's the world's dilemma is that we actually think we can support vulnerable and victimized populations by creating programs about them, 
for them, but without them. Right. And when that happens, then we're doomed to make those same mistakes that we've made in the past and likely on the backs of someone else. Yeah. I can't tell you how many boards, advisory boards, board of directors I've been on and no one from the population you serve is actually on the board making the decisions and people walk away thinking they've done their best, but you can't possibly do your best because you don't have the actual people at the table helping you make those decisions. I think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about like the narrative uh, that was sort of discussed during the podcast, because I think of a lot, I think a lot of oppressed groups suffer because there's a certain narrative about them that really drives everything. Yes. I think peppered throughout the talk was this idea that we set this narrative about a certain group. Um, They said we're this way. I mean, it happens in the black community all the time. It happens in the LBGT community and it happens in the indigenous uh, native communities. Systems are created to respond to a generalized population and set of problems, but they don't take into account culture. They don't. They don't understand the strength and the power that's. It comes from somebody's community, somebody's family, somebody's culture, and how that actually helps sustain their mental health, their well-being, those types of things. And I think that's difficult for systems to acknowledge when they think everybody's the same. Absolutely, and you know, I think when there's a general narrative or paradigm, it's so deeply rooted that it ends up affecting everything, our policies, um, our systems, even down to the individuals working in those systems. Yeah, I love that they enlightened us on the criminal justice system and the disproportionate number of arrests, the birth alerts. I was very shocked by that. That's sort of like, hey, want to give you the heads up, child welfare. Here's here's a, a native child that you can come and and deeply scrutinize and assess. And then the educational system, which I think what is is horrible, just doing a horrible job, uh, foster care system that is set up in these women's words to uh, as, a, as a funding source for a state to ship kids off into the foster care system. And the state would get money, actually more money, Uh, from the federal government if they do this. I mean, if I would say these women are credible, they are highly educated. One of them's a state senator. When they speak, they're not speaking from opinion. I mean, let's not do that to ourselves. Let's not repeat that kind of oppression. Let's not discount these women because they're women or because they're native or because they're speaking something we've never heard of. They're speaking from fact they went out and did, you know, they had a thousand page document of these stories. So let's legitimize what is happening. Let's just think, what if this is true? What if this is really real? I mean, if we just take that part into our soul and in our hearts, what if that was really happening? Everything they said, even half of what they said. So I invite you to stay with us as we delve a little deeper in a part three. But also this week, I found out that there's a documentary being released tomorrow. Uh, We'll have aired this episode, but look for it. It's called Sisters Rising Documentary. 
and they follow, I believe, six Indigenous women, and they tell the story of these women's lives. So I would invite you to take it upon yourself and learn even more because they are disproportionately affected by sexual assault and by human trafficking, particularly sex trafficking. So until next week, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.